Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey friends, welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. I am here with the full crew. Um Tosh, who is in California. Uh, pretty far from the action, but we got a uh, respondent. Owen Lewis is right there in Paris, and it's midnight. And uh, he just watched Medvedev versus Martin Cilic, who got possessed by a tennis god tonight. But that's not exactly where we're going to start this podcast with, because it's not the biggest news of Roland Garros this week. Um, so let's first uh, do a round of... Uh, well, Around, I'll check. Let's do a check on the how how is everybody doing? How is everybody doing after um, how many freaking matches have happened already in week one? How are you guys doing? <laughs> Pretty good, dude. This week one has been absolutely crazy. Obviously, you know we have um, an imbalance in the draws, and you know that was the storyline coming in. And you have four of the top five players in one half, and then you have a wide open sort of bottom half now on both the men's and the women's side. But everyone is eagerly anticipating Djokovic and Nadal number fifty nine tomorrow. And number 10 at Roland Garros, with um, obviously the storyline being um, Nadal playing an amazing match against Felix Auger-Aliassime just yesterday. And now as we record, we're recording on Monday, and the Djokovic and Nadal play tomorrow night. And um, it should be it should be amazing. But we, we still have um, majority of the top seeds on the on the men's side that made the quarters, except for except for Medvedev and Tsitsipas. And so we're going to we're gonna um, be. We're all gonna cover the Djokovic and Nadal, and we're gonna preview it, and we're gonna say what we think will happen, and then we'll we'll see how it pans out, right? Yeah, um, it's <laughs> funny because we lost number two and number four today, and tomorrow I think Alcaraz will beat Zverev, so that'll be number yeah. three gone. And if Nadal beats Djokovic, that'll be number one gone, and we will have lost the top four seeds in two days across the fourth round and the quarterfinals, which I don't think has happened in a long time, or maybe ever. Not really sure. Um, but yeah, Djokovic and Nadal is my favorite tennis rivalry, so I'm very excited for this match. Um, it should be awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's start with the obvious. Djokovic and Nadal tomorrow. Yeah, so I think this is going to be a this is going to be really interesting, also because of the conditions. I mean, you know, obviously, I don't want to, you know, say what I think will happen purely just based on the conditions, because obviously, you know, we've been fooled before, you know, in, in 2020 when the match was indoors and it was cold October conditions, um, like sort of you'd think more favorable to Djokovic. And then of course we know what happened in the final and we, it was a kind of a subpar Djokovic, but Nadal playing at his very best. And then obviously last year, I think more people were expecting Nadal to win. Uh, he was definitely the favorite going in. And then, and then Djokovic does this masterclass tactical performance, um, stays with Nadal for three sets and wears him out eventually in the, four, in the fourth. And then he's gone for about half the year, Nadal. And, you know, there were some things that transpired in that match, particularly with Djokovic's forehand, 
and how he was breaking the sidelines and he was using the forehand um, cross-court angle extremely well. He was making the doll hit backhands off the, on the first shot, which he does not like to do after the serve. He's always looking for a forehand and he's looking to... So the dynamics of that. So let's see you know, if that, so if that is in play tomorrow and if how Nadal can um, counteract that. And that's just tactically. And then we speak about like kind of how their path has gone since the clay season started and how uh, Djokovic started again in uh, Monte Carlo against Fokina and now where he is right now. I mean, it's quite a, quite a stark difference. And obviously he's won so many sets in a row and he just um, easily dispatched Diego Schwartzman yesterday, which uh, I know yeah. when you were there for that. So yes, it was, that. It, it was, um, it was one of those beatdowns. I mean, it was like a less extreme version of what we saw Chilich do to Medvedev today, where like, it's, it's so brutal that you want to look away, but it's so beautiful that you can't look away. Um, I mean, Schwartzman had absolutely nothing to hurt Djokovic with. Um, I mean, he was up 3-0 in the second set, and then he lost six games in a row, and it didn't even feel like a surprise. Um, he just couldn't get anything going because Djokovic does literally everything better than him. He's more power. Um, he's more weight on his shots. He's a bigger server. He's a little bit of a better returner. He's better touch. Um, yeah, it was everything. So... Yeah, Djokovic looks pretty good. And um, to me, what you mentioned about the tactics bunch is going to be the most interesting thing about this match. Because last year, Djokovic did use that angle forehand extremely well. But it wasn't really a thing that got going until the middle of the second set. And I felt like he kind of grew into the tactic as the match went on. And it also took Nadal a little bit by surprise. And now I feel like Djokovic is going to be trying to do that from the first ball. Nadal, given last year, is going to know that it's coming, so he will have prepared a countermeasure for it. And so I'm fascinated to see how that pans out. Like, what is Nadal going to do to try to break out of that? Um, is he going to hit his backhand harder? Is he going to avoid Djokovic's forehand? Um, what's Djokovic going to do if that tactic fails? Um, are the conditions going to create a match in which, like, that tactic isn't the centerpiece of things like it was last year? Um, I have a lot of questions. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. Yeah. What do you think it's um because we, we all know that Djokovic has a tactic that he can use against Nadal. And if it comes to the, the backhand, he can also try to rush Nadal, try to hit a bit, bit more angle, just a little bit deeper and rush his forehand, which mm -hmm. isn't as easy to do on clay, but it's feasible, especially with a 36-year-old Nadal with a foot that might screw up in the middle of it. But yep. what is a tactic that you guys would think that Nadal might have against Djokovic? Should they both be like fully fit? Well, for me, the one number one thing is going to be his forehand. His forehand has to be the absolute biggest weapon on the court because that's where he'll have the most advantage, especially like you're saying, you know, he's 36 now and his movement uh, has definitely declined from the peak versions of him of himself. So his forehand, I don't mean to Djokovic's forehand, I mean just his forehand in general needs to be overpowering and it needs to take over the match, in my opinion, for it, for him to have that have the kind of advantage. And usually the way he likes to get out of the pattern that Djokovic throws with his cross-court forehand. He usually tries to, you know, loop it back in the middle and kind of get back to neutral. And then he's sort of playing defense. But I'll be interested to see if he actually goes for more and tries to crack the backhand down the line. It's going to be tougher to do. Like, can he actually do that extremely well? Is he going to use a short slice in that situation? Is he going to bring Djokovic forward? Is he going to, is he going to be a little bit more aggressive off the first shot? Is he going to do more damage with his return? That's what I'm also wondering, you know, because obviously we know Djokovic is such a dynamic return of server and he can he can hit his return on a dime. Like Nadal has a very good return, but it's sort of more just to get himself back, uh, get himself like 
hit a really a deep position. return and just get him back yeah. into neutral, and then he can yeah. the, the forehand on the next shot. Whereas Djokovic is, you know, really gonna pummel him, uh, especially the second serve return. He's really gonna go after it. I think last year Nadal only won forty percent of his second serve points in their semifinal, and a lot of that, I mean, yeah. obviously the fourth set, you know, you, you can throw some of that away, but still, it was but even before match. that, it was moving yeah. in that direction. Yeah. Um, and I think you make a lot of good points, Vance, but I'm kind of going to disagree with you on the point about the forehand, because I feel like on this court, regardless mm-hmm. of the conditions, I think it will be the biggest weapon on, on the court and at all's forehand. Um, and I feel like be. that's almost, yeah, I, I feel like that's almost, advantage. yeah. And I feel like that's almost a given. So I, I think the bigger question is how is his backhand going to be? Because last year I thought his forehands did a bunch of good things, but his backhand faltered when Djokovic targeted it. Um, so my question is, yeah can he have a better backhand performance and can he break that tactic? And I think if he can, he probably wins. And if not, he's going to lose. Um, so yeah, I'm wondering what he's going to do with his backhands. Like, because when Djokovic can successfully pin him in that corner, he has a lot of options. He can go back to the backhand. He can hit to the open court. He can hit a drop shot. Um, and that gave Nadal fits last year and he could never really break out of that. Um, so I think Nadal's backhand is probably the biggest question for me because I think his forehand is going to be great. It usually is. I think Djokovic's backhand will be steady as it usually is. I think Djokovic will hit a bunch of angled forehands. Although that's another question I have, like, because last year he executed that angled forehands tactic at a really high level. Um, yeah. So I feel like to replicate that again, or was that just exactly kind of one off? Right. If he doesn't do that as well and he doesn't have as big an edge in the juice court rallies, then um, he's going to be under pressure. Um, so is he going to be able to be that accurate, that consistent, that patient? Um, if Nadal gets off to a flying start, like he often does, um, is he going to be able to rebound as well as he did last year? Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think the forehands are definitely important, but I think the forehand for Djokovic is more important and the backhand for Nadal is more important if I had to say. Yeah, I, def- I definitely agree. And the, um, on the serve, uh, you know, definitely on the Nadal serve, Djokovic is going to want to, on the deuce side, he's going to want to hit his backhand cross court and pin Nadal in that corner. And then on the on the ad side, he's going to want to go down the line with his backhand, which is extremely hard to do uh, at a high at a high clip. And then he's going to, and then Nadal's going to be hitting serve and serve plus backhands, which he definitely doesn't want to do because, you know, he's going to want to, he's definitely looks for a forehand right on the first shot. So I wonder how does he get off that, how does he get away from that pattern and get it back to neutral quickly? Mm-hmm. Going to be really interesting. Yeah. I think another thing I'm going to have my eye on is Nadal's serve. Because mm-hmm. Nadal didn't really serve that well last year. I think he had seven double faults. But he had also kind of had issues with his serve that whole play season. And even though his season this year has been really abbreviated, that hasn't been the case. Um, like, I don't think double faults were an issue against OJ Aliassine. So I'm wondering if he serves a bit better than he did last year which I think is very possible and maybe even likely. How does that change things? Mm-hmm. And then also... Do you think that, that maybe the double faults... I mean, you obviously said that he was having trouble in general, but given Djokovic is such a bigger returner and, you know, the big three know when they're facing each other. So, like, do you think it could apply a little bit more pressure and Nadal could go a little bit more for his for his serve and, than he normally would? And that might, have, might cause a bit more double faults in that sense? I'm not entirely sure like what Nadal plans to do with his with his forehand. Like it's it might depend on his level of con- confidence. Not not with his forehand, but with his serve. It might depend on his level of confidence and like if he feeling he's feeling like he doesn't need to play himself. Like 
to keep constantly doing better than he normally is. So it, it kind of is a thing like when lower ranked players are like they face those guys, they feel like they need to go for the lines a lot more. So if Nadal isn't as confident, he might feel like he needs to go for the lines a lot more, like even on his serve, which could be a problem because Nadal has never really been known as a big server. And he normally uses his serve as a tactical weapon to like set up his next shot. So mm-hmm. if he's not planning on, he, he needs to get accuracy, but not line accuracy. I feel like he needs, just needs to make sure that he opens up the court or he uses the serve down the tee on that side a little bit more, like not more, but like um, with more varied, like um, a more varied way so that he can, if not make uh, serve aces, he can at least like get like a Djokovic out of, out of balance and like hit up poorer returns like a little bit of a floater ball um, that doesn't land too deep and he can just kind of finish it off with this forehand i think that could be yeah really key for him but it's kind of interesting because on clay I, you know i mean obviously on faster courts Djokovic has the big edge on serve and he's just a better spot server in general and he's he, he can win so many more cheap points but it's kind of neutralized on clay for both of them so i feel like it's so much dependent on the baseline really and the first shot after the serve more than like the serve itself. I the good thing is I don't think we've seen a high double fault rate from Nadal uh this year. Right. Especially to the extent that it was last year. And you know, maybe if the foot is bothering him, then he'll have he'll have a harder time pushing off on his serve, maybe. Um, but yeah. So far the good news is I think the foot looks seems to be holding up pretty well. Um, especially in the yeah. fifth like yesterday he had quite a bit of spring and he was definitely very explosive, especially towards the end. Yeah, I mean, defensively, he was outstanding. I, from what I saw, he didn't look hampered at all. Um, and I think, I mean, I think it's possible that that could change because neither player is going to win this match without, like, this is not going to be an easy match. Nadal's just played a long one. And I think, like, I don't see him winning in three sets or an easy four sets. Like, it's going to be long like it was last year. And for a lot of the match last year, he looked okay. But then it hit him at the end. Um so we know that this sort of thing can happen mid-match, and I think that's definitely something to look out for. Um, so I'll also be curious to see, like, how many drop shots is Nadal going to chase down? Because that's we know that's going to be a big part of Djokovic's strategy. He's going to make Nadal run. He's going to hit a lot of drop shots. It's at night, so it's going to be a lower bounce. They might even have a bigger effect than they did last year. That match started during the day. Um, so early on, if I were Rafa, I might let a few of them go. So then if I'm down break point and Djokovic hits a drop shot, I have the legs to go for that. Um, whereas if he runs everything down at the beginning, it might screw him over later. Yeah. That's definitely something Djokovic is doing a lot better this year than he was in 2020 and 2019, I feel, and during the clay mm-hmm. season. He's using his drop shot less as a bailout and more as an actual tactical winning strategy. Yeah. Because if you remember in 2020, yeah. I mean, he overused that and Nadal was all was over bad. that. Like right in the beginning. Like I think in the first game itself, he had like two or three really predictable ones and Nadal chased them all down. Yeah. Do you guys think Nadal is going to be trying to bring Djokovic to the net a few more times than he would normally? Just based on fitness, even if both are fully fit as they are right now, Djokovic is the fitter and faster player, I would say. Like it's probably not like a huge difference in the first set become like fourth and the fourth set like it goes to a fifth set I feel like Djokovic should be fresher so I'm not really sure like do you guys think that um, Nadal is going to try to like make Djokovic run or is he going to be going more for shorter points and try, try to get like more one-two punches and as you said uh, when you're talking about like his backhand um, I missed a lot like last year specifically like the 
the very flat backhand that Nadal can hit either down the line or cross court. And I feel like it didn't hit that enough. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I agree. The cross court one yeah. is big because then he can, yeah. then he gets Djokovic stretched out defending on his forehand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he, then maybe after that, he could use the backhand line drop shot or he can throw in the short slice and make Djokovic hit kind of an awkward low backhand and then go for a forehand down the line on the next ball. Yeah. I, I actually think Nadal shouldn't use the backhand drop shot that much. I'm remembering a couple of them from last year that really hung up. Mm-hmm. And I think Djokovic doesn't fear Nadal's backhand. So when the ball goes to that side, he can hug the baseline which puts him in an ideal position to run down a drop shot. But I would love to see Nadal use the forehand drop shot because I think on that forehand, you're already in a bit of trouble because Nadal disguises it very well. You're not really sure if he's going to go cross quarter down the line. And so I think if he throws in a drop shot, that would make it even more unpredictable. Um, it would mess with Djokovic's court positioning a little bit, like maybe he couldn't play as deep. Um, and I think Nadal hits the forehand drop shot better than he hits the backhand drop shot. Um, but... Yeah, I think I'm not really sure how much Nadal is going to do with that because I think he generally loses out in those cat and mouse battles at net now. Like Djokovic is better with a counter drop shot. Um, That happened a lot last year. Nadal would hit like bad drop shots and they would get punished or he even missed a couple of them. Um, And so I think he should go for drop shots when he has the space. But like if I were him, I, I wouldn't try to make it that much about the net. I think he has to win the match with his forehand and backhand. Like topspin. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Because I think, because last year he was definitely losing a lot more of them. And in 2020, it was quite the opposite. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. Well, it's I, I think 2020 was interesting because, like, if I'm remembering this stat right, I think Djokovic won like 52% of the points where he played a drop shot. And that's like not nearly good enough for that tactic to be worth it. Um, but like he did still win over half. Um, so I, like, I don't know. I think because I'm, I'm trying to wonder what would be an ideal court position for Nadal, because if he stands in close, he can neutralize the drop shots, but he also takes away some time. Um, and his ground strokes really need time to reach their full aggressive potential. Um, so yeah, it's tough. Um, I'm not really sure which one I would go for if I were him. Yeah. And obviously, speaking about the conditions, we know Nadal, I mean, obviously, he doesn't like to play at night. He made that very clear many, many times. And he obviously wants the, for him, he'd want the livelier, bouncier conditions during the day and the hot sun and all of that. But I also think, and obviously Djokovic, you know, he he favors these conditions more. But I think we saw it a little bit in 2020, and we also saw it a little bit in the baseline rallies in 2018 Wimbledon, when, okay, it's not, you know, obviously, it's on grass and different surface and different circumstances, but Nadal had more time on a lot of his ground strokes and he could, he actually had more time to, for his offense and he mm-hmm. could, he could do a better job of rushing Djokovic and contrary Djokovic was the one having to work harder to hit through the court. And obviously now, I mean, his forehand is looking really, really good. And it's been looking good since Madrid and especially Rome. But I wonder if he'll be able to keep up that same kind of aggression, especially what he had last year as the conditions started to cool down. Is that going to be enough of an advantage for Djokovic? Like I, I've still yet to see. I've still yet to see if, like how big of a factor that that really is. I think we can assess that when the match is actually completed. Because I'm not sure how yeah. much advantage it actually is for Djokovic. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Like last year, his most devastating shot was that angled forehand, but he wow. didn't hit winners off of it. Like I think he hit yeah. one winner with that the entire match, which was at three all in the tiebreak at the end of a great rally. 
but it was more a positioning thing and an error forcing thing and a shot he used to set up other shots than a weapon itself. Um, and so if that doesn't work, I'm curious to see if he has a fallback plan to hit through Nadal um, because I don't really know that he did that last year. Um, so I, I think that's definitely a question. And Nadal, his movement is diminished, but he's still an otherworldly defender on clay. So it's not going to be easy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not going to be hit, easy to hit through him, even his speed. Yeah. Um, especially yeah. The, the three sets that he won yesterday, I thought were supremely good. Like he was defending incredibly well. He was, he's still a really tough guy to hit through. Like it's, it's still a nightmare trying to, trying to do it. I mean, Felix was extremely good at the serve and serve plus one. But I feel like every time they went to a rally beyond five shots or nine shots, I mean, it all still had the significant edge. Yeah. And uh, if you move on a bit to backwards, like to matches that already happened, if you pick, still like in the topic of Djokovic, Nadal, Djokovic destroyed Schwartzman, and Nadal had a, this big battle against uh, Um What do you guys, can you guys tell anything from those matches? Uh, Djokovic has obviously been looking really good since Rome, pretty much. Um, his level has been pretty pretty up there, I would say. Um, Nadal has had moments, like even in this clay season, that he wasn't really at his best. And against Ojeda Yassim, especially his start was really terrible. Like, he has hit yeah. a lot of enforced errors. Um, I don't think he can afford to, like, fall down, like, a 1-6 against Djokovic. Even though it's Nadal, like, I don't feel like Nadal, like, wants to give him the pleasure of like gaining momentum for so long and Nadal to like lose so much of his legs on a completely useless set so yeah uh, do you guys think you can tell anything from uh, the previous matches that happened from this, these guys and you can go f um, further back even if you want to yeah um, I think kind of both of those matches were encouraging and also come with a little bit of risk like I think in Djokovic's case played great didn't do anything wrong He's going to be fresh. That's awesome. But Schwartzman did not make him adjust. Schwartzman never made him uncomfortable. He That was as easy for him as a practice session. And it's not going to be like that against Nadal. Um, and so like he, these guys have talked a lot about suffering. And they've both said it helps to suffer before a big match. And Djokovic did not suffer. So I wonder if that could possibly hurt him. Um, Nadal did suffer. But he maybe suffered too much. Like if he lost enough in his legs... Or, um, or if this will affect his foot, which we don't really know, um, like then maybe it would have been better if he had gotten out of that match sooner. Um, I think if he is fresh, it could be the best of both worlds for him because, like, he had some patches that weren't good, and then he had some patches that were amazing. Like, I think his form is there in the fifth set. I think he was at his best. He hit fifteen winners, four on four servers. He defended really well. Jose Aliassime he actually hit 10 winners and five on four servers and he lost the set six, three and he never got past 30 in a Nadal service game. Like that's, that's brutal. Nadal was basically playing perfect tennis. Um, and we know that he raises his game against the tough opponents. Like I think against Djokovic, he's not going to have a walkabout like he did in the fourth set against Jose Um, so in a way, I think both matches were encouraging because they displayed form. Um, but I think maybe Djokovic didn't suffer enough and maybe Nadal suffered too much. That's a good point you make about um, suffering before a big battle and how much of that is, oh, did he tire himself out too much? Or, oh, he, you know, he might have actually really played himself into form at just the right just the right time. And I feel like the way he finished off that match from 4-3 and those two spectacular 
uh, games that he played. I mean, that was like a vintage game that he played to break Ocelius' team and mm-hmm. 4-3 in the fifth set. I mean, Felix made all of his first serves. He did everything you could have possibly asked him to do. He was aggressive on his uh, approach shots. He came to the net when he when he had to. He he played good defense. He he you know like pretty much everything that you would you would have you would have wanted from him. He did, and it all just played an absolute perfect. That was like you know a perfect embodiment of why he's won thirteen Roland Garros titles. I feel like the last two games. So I wonder if he takes that into this match, and he's kind of just raring to go, like right from the get go. Because I don't know if you saw this interview, but he even said to Tennis Channel afterwards that you know, sort of every match that he plays here from now on, given everything that he suffered last year and also suffered, you know, before Madrid and Rome, you know, he sort of hopes that it's not his last match at Roland Garros, but he's going to play it like it is. So I kind of just, and obviously with, with, um, with just how, how much that he, like, he doesn't know if he'll ever be back and all of that, all of those doubts that he has, you know, with his foot and his, his injuries and a little bit of that aura sort of going away. Um, and more guys in the locker room having belief, he might just come out and just be guns blazing, ready to go. Now, traditionally, that doesn't always happen, especially because he's a little bit more of a slow starter in these kind of matches. Mm-hmm. And usually it's Novak who's who's uh, usually sharper from the get-go. So I'm interested to see if that actually plays out because I don't think he can afford to go down 6-1 or 6-love and you know just lose that first set. This is in 2007 or 2008 anymore where... I don't think he just quite has that in his legs because also he he has a lot more dips now. He finds it harder to close out matches. Yeah, um, definitely nerves come into play. You saw in the fourth set, um, Felix Ojeda-Yasin played incredible, but Nadal led him back into the match, mm-hmm. and he was up forty love in his serve, and all of a sudden he made three uncharacteristically bad on four stars. Yeah, he was even up love thirty in Felix's first service game that set. It looks like exactly. he was going to run away with yeah. the match, and he completely took his foot off the gas. Yeah. yeah, so it's encouraging the three sets that he did win because his winners to enforce ratio in all three sets was really good yeah. and really high level and also on that note i feel like um it is a different situation obviously different surface different achievement but like nadal also yeah. failed to serve out the match against medvedev in uh in the fifth set in australia yeah, which is, right. was very yeah. i think uncharacteristic is the good word to like say because nadal isn't the guy who like normally fails but it's i guess given the achievement um, was different, but like, do you do you think this makes anything? Do you think Nadal could face something like that against Djokovic? Should be like on the verge of like beating Djokovic again and like reaching a semifinal? <laughs> I I think so. Um, yeah, I think it could I, happen because you know, with age, you do tend to get a little bit tighter and you start you almost know too much because you've been in yeah. this situation so many times before. Yeah, I mean, too much. <laughs> I I actually think it could happen to both guys. I mean, we yeah. we saw that last year in the third set, like there were points where they both should have won it. I mean, Djokovic was up 5-4, 30 love. And then 20 minutes after that, he was down 5-6 on set point. Um, and then Nadal lost that point. And then he played a couple of bad points in the tie break and ended up losing the set. Like, I think there were points in that match where they both choked a little bit. Yeah. Choked is probably a bit of a strong word. But yeah, I think big points are going to be huge. And a narrative, not really a narrative, but a point about that semi last year that I didn't really see explored was... um. Nadal lost a lot of break points. Like he, I can remember at least four individual games where he had break point and didn't convert and Djokovic went on to hold. Um, That's not going to fly. Like he has to convert his opportunities because there were points where I think he could have won the third set last year. And even the second set, he had three break points at two, four and two break points at three, five. 
and he lost all of them and lost the set 6-3. Um, that can't happen if he's going to win this match. Like, he needs to be opportunistic. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that could absolutely be a factor for Nadal, but also for Djokovic. Side note here, I, I will never forget Djokovic's face when he was up against Nadal in the third set, and he was he felt like he was going to win. And then Nadal kind of went back into this match, and Djokovic's face was like literally like, oh, crap, what have I done? <laughs> I have never seen him so like startled and confused like in, in my entire life. It was it was kind of really funny, <laughs> to be honest. But like anyway, back on track. <laughs> no, I mean that, it was a really interesting passage because at five four thirty love, I think everyone thought he had the set, and then yeah. he missed a forehand into the net, and that made it thirty fifteen, and it was a bad miss, and everyone was like, "Oh, that was weird." But from thirty fifteen, you should definitely still be serving out a set. Um, and then Nadal played three good points in a row. And I remember the commentators were like, did you see that coming? And the other one was like, not at 30 love. And I was like, yeah, I don't think anyone did. Um, yeah. Stuff can happen very quickly when you play Nadal on, on Chaudhry, as as Felix yeah. discovered yesterday. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I guess now is the time where we predict and we hopefully we... Yeah. Or it doesn't really matter. I mean, we can we can predict and then... And be wrong and the match and be wrong. Yeah. I would right. hope that's that the, the match is good. That's the only thing that I hope. Even though the more chances than not that the match will be, like we just hope that it won't be a terrible one. Um who's gonna go first? <sighs> thing is I never want to bet against Nadal on Shatri, and I do know that Nadal, you know, as bad as that foot got towards the end of the fourth set, mm-hmm. and because Djokovic pushed him there and he he went to a place with Nadal that, you know. No one else can really do on Chatrier. So, and obviously, you know, so going in, like, it feels weird to say, but he has to be the favorite. Mm. Uh, or it would feel weird to say in another normal year, but, you know, this isn't, this definitely isn't the lead up that Nadal would have wanted. And obviously, you know, Djokovic is red hard and confident, and he has the win from last year. And yeah, he just has the edge in physically. And I, I think a lot of it will come down to fitness because these two play out long, long rallies, and they push each other to the absolute limit. So I think it'll absolutely be a factor. Yeah. So if I say, but, you know, if I were to guess, I don't, I just hope we get one or two really high quality sets at this point, you know, the 36 and yeah. 35. And it's unreasonable to sort of expect that they'll play a match like 2018 Wimbledon and where all five sets will just be absolutely crazy, crisp, clean ball striking. And let me hope, Vance, come on. And I, I hope so too, but I think we could sort of get a situation like 2017 Australian Open final between Federer and Nadal where they both kind of, you know, they have their own sets where they both impose their tactical paralysis and then they have one really, mm-hmm. one kind of really good set, right? Yeah. So I, I could kind of sort of see that. And I, and I feel like Djokovic has an edge, but it's not quite as much as, you know, people are, people are saying it is still Nadal and Chartier, even though it's at night. So I'm going to say we, we do get a really nice five setter and we say it goes over four hours. Yes, I'm gonna say I like that it. I think it's possible. Djokovic has beaten Nadal in three and four sets before, and you know it is a quarterfinal, and you know, so it's it has a different feel to it. Like the stakes are slightly lower, you know, still incredibly high, but given that you know Alcaraz is still there and you still got to win the final against whoever that is, I I think I'm gonna lean Djokovic in five. I'm mm-hmm. thinking I'm gonna go with it, and I think the fifth set is gonna be the best set. That's my prediction. I think it's going to be a 6-4 or 7-5 in the fifth yeah. for Djokovic. I'm going yeah. to go a little bit different. Like I, I will still say also Djokovic in five, but mostly because, one, I've predicted him to win in uh, Murray Mielsen's podcast 
um, right yeah. before I left, I said Djokovic will win um, the tournament. So like to win the tournament, he also must beat Nadal at this point. So, um, but I think that Djokovic is going to have like a, like a sort of like a Nadal Federer 2009 Australian Open fifth set in which like is going to just take over it. Like it's, I think it's Nadal is going to be a little bit more cooked by the end of the match and Djokovic oh. will feel like it's time to finish it on. Like it's just going to smell blood and you'll take it. Kind of like the fourth set last year, you mean? Sort of, but like without Nadal's foot really like bothering him, I think Nadal would just be like out. <laughs> do you think Djokovic could do that to Nadal on this court? Like if Nadal's physically fine, do you think he could beat him in a set like that? I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? I, I, I don't know if I see it. I'm, I mean, I was also going to say Djokovic in five, but now I have to change because you both said that. And uh, we and here at Tennis and Bagels, we are many things, but we are not boring, guys. So, um, don't so are not boring. Yeah. So, um, I mean, first I want to say like, I have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, um, when I was, when I was at the French open today, I, um, I took a walk with, uh, Sasha Osmo of a sport club and, um, tennis majors. And we, we chatted a bit and this match came up and he asked me like, what do you think is going to happen? And I was like, I have no idea. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. They played 58 times and I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, because I don't know. I mean, I thought Nadal's level was great against Felix and Djokovic's level has been great, but I don't know if that's going to be repeatable. I don't know how the conditions are going to affect things. I don't know how Nadal will be physically. I don't know if Djokovic can execute his game plan as well as he did last year. Um, but I said I would be different. So I'm going to say Nadal in five. Um, he oh, okay. goes into that mode he went into in the Australian Open final. He's talked about how... Um, this could be his last Roland Garros, or this could be every match could be his last. So he's he never leaves anything on the table, but he's really not going to leave anything on the table. Um, the foot decides to be merciful, um, so he has energy. Uh, he can move, um, and he wins 6-4 in the fifth. And your um, mom goes six, berserk. Four? And my mom goes berserk. You yes. don't want to say 7-6? Uh, the Vigroff uh, event. <laughs> Imagine we get a 10-point tiebreak. Oh, my God. No, see, I consider myself pretty neutral, and even I don't think I could take that. I think... Um, but, yeah, I mean, that'd be amazing. And I do want to say, as assuming this episode comes out before the match, if you're listening to this and you have a vested interest in this match, and even if you don't have a vested interest in this match, please stay off Twitter for like maybe the entire day, but especially during the match, because you will see people saying the match doesn't matter. You'll see people saying... Nadal is faking an injury. You'll see people saying yeah. Nadal is so hurt that the match doesn't matter at all. Yeah. You will see members of each fan base trying to hurt members of the other fan base as much as they can. Um, you will see people who are really invested in the match let that affect their tactical analysis. Um, just stay off. Like, watch the match, enjoy it, form your own takes, and then turn them on Twitter. Like, don't get drawn into the toxicity so much that yeah. it affects your enjoyment of what should be a really great day for tennis. Um, so watch it, enjoy it, but please, if you can, like, don't tweet, don't fight. Let's let's just try to enjoy this as much as possible. Also, very important, depending on like which streaming you're watching, you stay off Twitter during the match because you might be behind <laughs> and you get yeah. terrible, um, terrible spoilers. Yeah, and, and also if you didn't know this, this this is the night session, and Amazon Prime is letting everyone watch this for free. Um, so, like, so if you don't have a way to watch uh, Amazon Prime, um, yes, nice. And I would yeah. also say, stop with the conspiracies about them being in, uh, put on during the day or being put on in the night. 
Yeah. <laughs> decided it's the broadcasters, it's the TV. There's a million things that go into play here. And, yep. you know, we shouldn't let that, you know, come into our analysis and be like, well, Nadal was robbed or Djokovic was robbed just because right. we're so invested in that particular player. So, yeah, yeah I, I would one also of the reasons argue. why you should stay on Twitter, stay off Twitter during the match. Yes. Because... I, I would also argue that if you think one player or the other was robbed by when the match was scheduled, you do not have enough faith in that player. Um, I think it's insane to think that Djokovic couldn't have won during the day or that Nadal can't win during the night um, because they're that good. They're the goats for a reason. Um, the outcome of this match is very much up in the air. So just try to enjoy it as a sporting event and not the breeding ground for conspiracy theories or fan wars. Yeah, I mean, just 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 remember this. Nadal and Djokovic are a record at one all on night matches at Philip Chatry in Roland Garros. So it could be anyone's. It is anyone's game. So, well, 2020 was during the day, right? It yeah, was just... It was, it was just through. indoors and it was... Yeah. It, yeah. well, it didn't go the nighttime, so... Oh, c- come on, Andre. You're you're spouting BS stats. You're a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. You're trying to make you're trying to make Nadal look better than he actually looks. Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> I'm joking. Nadal actually um, lost th- that, that, that is what Twitter will look like tomorrow, night. though. So again, stay off Twitter. Um, so Don't be yeah. fooled by the 3D chess. With these yeah. um, so so to summarize, we all expect a five setter. Um, you guys think Djokovic is going to win? Um, what do you think the breakdown of the sets is going to be? Do you think they're going to trade sets? Do you think one player goes up two sets and then we get a comeback? Um, I think the player who wins the third set mm. is going to win the match. That's my oh. I think the I how think very the statistical wins, of you. I think the player who wins will lose the first set. Okay, like last year. Yeah. Huh. I kind of don't see that happening. Just like last year surprised me so much, just because Nadal had never. Oh, actually, let me backtrack. The first set. So wh- whoever wins the third set will win the match as long as that player wins one down of the first two sets. Yeah, yeah, wasn't down two sets to love oh, because yeah, I don't I, see I a don't two see sets a two to love come back. Right. Yeah, I think if we got that, that would be that would be just another incredible thing on their resumes that yeah already so big it could fill up this entire room and then some. But right, I mean, see now that I think about it. I think the most likely thing is like they split the first two sets and then again, the winner of the third set wins the match. Like just yeah, because that's, that's, kind of that's usually how it goes with those two. Um, like neither of them, they're both such good front runners that they're not going to lose from two sets to one up. Um, they'll get very close, but it hasn't happened to either of them against the other one. Um, I mean, Djokovic was six points away at the 2013 Roland Garros. Nadal was five, also six points away at the Australian Open in 2012 and then five points away at Wimbledon in 2018, but it hasn't happened and it hasn't happened for a reason. So yeah, I guess whoever wins that third set, um, I think we could be set up for like a similar pattern to last year where like kind of they feel each other out in the first two sets. They have some dips, but then for a good 40, 50 minutes, they'll be at their best at the same time. And whoever wins the set in which that happens is going to win the match. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're all just really excited, and we hope yeah. uh, both we guys hope are that is a fi- a fist, deliver. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, we just yeah, we just I'm, want a good match, really. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm going to be uh, there at the stadium, so I will take a bunch of fixtures and I'll write about it later that night. Um, so stay tuned for that. Might take me a few hours uh, to let the endorphins digest, but uh, I will write something. So yeah. yes. Now Let's enough go. about these old dudes and uh, yeah. 
Now, how about this nineteen-year-old uh, kid? The, the next generation. There's so many young people. There's very. There's, there's two nineteen-year-olds actually. In there's the, two nineteen-year-olds in the men's draw, right. and then we have yes. like a twenty-year-old. Twenty-one? Is she twenty-one or twenty? She turns twenty-one tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. So, that's true. And then we have on the bottom half, we have Coco Golf, who's still alive, and we have Leila Fernandez and other people. <laughs> okay, so where do we want to start with this? Do we want to do the rest of men's, or do we want to? Go with the women. Let's take a break from the men and just. Yeah, look, for the women. can I talk about Niga first? Yes, let's do it. Yeah, because she she was pushed today, which uh, which doesn't happen. So Fiontech looks more at all um, because she she squandered five set points in the first set, and she lost a tie break, losing five points in a row from five two up, and she had two serves. And Jung suffered from some cramps, which she implied were um, were from her period. Um, she said it was the first day, and um, and that. You know, um, I don't know, but that must have been very difficult to deal with. And credit to her for talking about that. Um, and I think it definitely played a part in the match because it got much more lopsided after the first set. Um, but I think that first set was kind of instructive because it was the second match in a row in which Fiontech hasn't really looked as imperious as she. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Has during most of her winning streak, um, you know, Zhang was really outplaying her at times. Um, she was hitting her shots with equal weight to Sviantex and um, she was hitting drop shots and just going toe to toe to her with her very successfully, which players haven't been able to do. Um, and so I was wondering, do you guys think we should read into this? Like is Sviantex having a dip in form? Is this going to last? If it is a dip in form, is it big enough that she could lose? Um, or even if she plays at this level, will she still win the tournament? Um, what were your thoughts on it? I think both yes and no. Yeah. I would say yes. Um, it, it shows that she's definitely feeling the pressure a little bit more. She's definitely a little bit more stressed um, because she has the last top 10 seed remaining. She does have all this pressure. She's absolutely uh, the favorite to, to win this, like, by a long, long, long margin. And so, like, like if she doesn't win it, it'll basically be considered a disappointment, as as harsh as that is, you know? No, Even it's right, winning, though. It's, it's the correct assessment, right? So yeah. I feel like she, it definitely shows that she's, you know, still having, she's having some doubts and some some tight moments, but it also shows that her base level is so high that and that she's still so much better than the rest of the field that it just may not end up mattering mm-hmm. at all. So... I feel like it's a little bit of both, but what does what should be encouraging is that, or for the other players in the draw, this would be more encouraging because you have players like Leila Fernandez, 
and I guess to some extent Coco Goff as well, and then even Sloane Stephens because she has the pedigree and she's been to a French Open final before and she's won the U.S. Open, so she's been in these situations. And usually, you know, she's a player who's really hot and cold, but when she's in the second weeks of these majors, she's just destroying people. Like she destroyed Jill Teichman and fortunately double bageled her, which was a really impressive result. But yeah. my point is that you you need to be absolutely fearless to beat Triantec, and I feel like those three that I just mentioned, they will mostly um. Leila and Goff, because they don't quite have the the baggage and they're still really young. And they saw what Raducanu did at the U.S. Open last year. And, you know, and Leila is sort of in that U.S. Open mood mood right now. And uh, it's going to, and she's going to get the crowd on her side. They're going to want to, you know, it's going to get competitive because they're not going to go down without a fight. And I feel like just also tactically, there could be some interesting things, especially if like, if we get a Fernandez Shiontek, I feel like that would be the best match personally that's what i would root for mm-hmm. even though um on the murray musings podcast i did predict that coco golf would get to the final but i would love to see either golf or fernandez mm. get there and you gotta get there as well and then you could see a, a match between you know a 20 and 18 year old and it would be it would be great for the game it would also be great for the game if you got just you know won ruthlessly again because then it would be it's kind of like every outcome now in the women's draw is so good that yeah. there's no real like preference but you just feel like if Iga establishes herself and she wins another second French Open it's in a way it's really good for the game mm. because yeah. you also I'd need continuity that. mixed in with yeah. you know unpredictability right so on the topic of disappointment I feel like it would be especially I think she would be open about this like if if you, yeah. if you were to speak to her because I mean it to win five straight titles and not win the one that like you really want yeah I think it would just like ring weird. It was like all of this was, it would probably would feel like it was for nothing. Like you have oh, yeah. done so well just to kind of like lose, like right at the moment when it matters most. And um, yeah. right after the match, I'm pretty sure if she would lose, she would say like, I would give all of those five titles for this one. Like, but yeah. of course, like at the end of like the year, she probably look back and say like, of course, like it was an amazing run. Like it, it will always be an amazing run to win like five titles in a row for uh, that would say 1000 events. That's four thousand points. That's like double what a Grand Slam is. Like, but at the same time, it's like it's it's Roland Garros. It's the title that she really, really wants. She's in really good form. I don't think I can read too much into like the set that she lost today. Not because it wasn't like a dip in form, but I feel like it wasn't significant enough. Like she wasn't playing a horrible tennis. She wasn't. Um, playing like making a thousand and four there she had five set points or four and it's it's pretty it's pretty good like I mean sometimes you're gonna lose sometimes you're gonna win uh, in those sets and it's important that she never stopped believing and she kept being aggressive she kept going for it and I think that even if her level drops I think she's confident enough that she can pick it up again so I feel like she wouldn't be startled or confused or she would like go completely off her game plan I don't think she would lose her mind from a going down a set um in uh, if she went to go to the final or in another match you would definitely like wear down like if she went down a set from every single match from now on like you've definitely like hurt her confidence but just one match i don't think it was it would be enough for her to believe that she doesn't believe anymore that she can win this and that she should win this i feel like after the end of this match she would still believe that she can and that she should win this title no matter who's in front of the net uh, who's at the other side of the net from her 
Um, yeah. in all of these titles that she's won, she's at least had to face one or two really tough tests. Yeah. And each time mm-hmm. she's sort of overcome it. So she's been battle tested and then she's sort of played a really flawless semis and the finals. And so it could, I, I, I really like that point actually a lot because even in uh, Rome, we saw her like really tested for a set against Azarenka and against Andrescu. And then she was just able to steamroll from there and she kind of just had two really like iffy sets where we've, we were like, oh, that's a bit nervous. And she was uncharacteristically missing like the second set against Kovinich and then the first set today, right? So it's still only like two sets. I guess if we see it like again and we see it, like if she drops the, the set like every single time from here, then it would be like, hmm, this isn't great. Yeah, I, I think in a way, a match like this can give her even more belief because she wasn't at her best and she was still nowhere close to losing. Um, yeah. and that was the case with her previous round as well. But I think at the same time, her, her rivals watching this could also get more belief because yep. they're seeing like, she's still winning, but she's not in God mode anymore. Um, I think another name to look out for is a uh, Daria Kasukina who was phenomenal against uh, Kamala Georgie today. I was at that match. Um, she destroyed her. It was six, two, six, two, um, not only did she neutralize Georgie's power with great defense, but she hit a bunch of her own winners, barely made unforced errors. Um, and so I think players like her, uh, Fernandez Goff, like you guys mentioned, if they saw this match, they would be thinking like, okay, like I, I can believe a little bit. Like, sure, she's still the favorite, still the huge favorite. But if we play, like, I know I'll get a little bit of help maybe. Like, I won't have to do everything myself. Um, and that I could potentially... prefer someone who is... That's a great point about Kazakina because she's been absolutely cruising through everyone in this tournament. Like she's only yep. dropped 14 games and she's in the quarters. And she played this really good match against Georgie who beat Sabalenka the round before. Yeah. But do you think it's better if for someone who's played her three or four times to go up against her now and gotten destroyed all three times like uh, Kazakina did this year? Or do you think someone like like a Layla or I guess Goff played her in Miami and got... Uh, that was pretty one-sided as well. But like if... <laughs> so if Layla plays her... Or someone for the first time, like a Stephens or a Layla, do you think they have a better chance of beating her? Purely because, you know, Shiontek hasn't faced them before and they can. I mean, um, Shiontek uh, played uh, Layla at the beginning of the year, but Layla was. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, It was yeah, a really good, like, two or three games, and then Layla just kind of, like, physically oh, yeah, yeah. went away. And, I remember and, that. And then Shiontek hit the god mode that she would eventually hit again. <laughs> But um, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah. I I kind I kind of think it doesn't matter because I don't think there's anything you can really attack in her game. I think you just have Mm -hmm. to play her and do the best you can. Um, I mean, you can punish her on the return, but that's about it. Like, I don't think playing her multiple times gives you any sort of tactical advantage. Um, and so yeah, I mean, as if it's your first time, as long as you don't let yourself get jolted by the level that she brings, um, I don't think it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's tough to predict anything to go against Biontech because, well, obviously she's been riding like a, h- a huge wave of momentum, but also like when is it gonna end, right? So it's like it's it's tough to predict like when is the winning streak ending, um, and even though Martina uh, Navratilova went on a like seventy five win in the winning streak at some point or something like that, um, when you get to a certain threshold, it's like this has to win at some point. Like it's it's. It's bound to land like it's it's almost like a matter of time it's just a matter of like who is going to like yeah i feel like it's going to be more up to 
it's more going to be dependent on her than her opponent at this point. Yeah, but oh, yeah. I don't I don't see Kazakina winning. I think she could take a set though, but I just feel mm-hmm. like Shiontek has sort of like the same thing in a lesser um, level, like Djokovic Rossman. I think Shiontek just does everything that Kazakina does, but better. So that's yeah, kind of like, in a way, their their well, well, technique is pretty similar, but Shiontek is faster and just more powerful. But yeah. mm-hmm. well, well, that's the thing. Like I. I still can't see her losing to anyone. Like she's going to have to play as badly as she did the last two rounds or worse. And her opponents are going to have to play really well the entire time. Like she's still so much better than everyone else. Um, whatever it will take for her to lose. Like we still haven't seen it. Like she's going to have to play worse than this um, or her opponents are going to have to have a God mode performance. Like I, I don't think like today or her last match warrants like being worried or even like saying that, she has worse chances than we said before. Like she's still the huge favorite. Um, she's still got that thing where like in finals, she takes it up like five notches and destroys whoever she plays. Yeah. Like it's still all on her racket. Um, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think uh, like ego being so much better than the rest of the field? It always brings up that question, right? Like, is it that she is so good and she's so untouchable or is it that the rest of the top 10 right now is a, in a bit of a vulnerable position given that you know i mean a lot of them are suffering from injuries uh pushkova coming back from an injury uh krajikova injured uh, played one ma- played her first match here and lost in the first round jabor on a really hot, hot winning streak but you know surprising first round exit and then you know sakari expected to go really deep comes up against a really good player whose ranking doesn't reflect her true potential but you know, crashes out. And then, like, you know, Sabalenka with all her service struck uh, woes and all of that, like, do you read much into that? Or do you think this is, you know, do you think, like, they've shown enough throughout the past one year that, uh, you know, their peak levels sort of speak for themselves as to how capable they are? Or do you think it's it's all about Shriantek just being absolutely levels above everyone? Well, it's kind of hard I, to tell. I, I think, as always, with this kind of thing, it's somewhere in the middle. Like... <laughs> You can look at it and simultaneously say, like, if Ego were playing prime Serena Williams, would she have a winning streak this long? No. But at the same time, is she amazing and way better than everyone else because she's amazing? Yes. Um, I think... Bit of both. Yeah. Like, she's she's doing things that, like, are insane. I mean, her movement is off the charts. There's not really a weakness in her game. Um, sometimes you can attack the surf, but that's about it. Um but I also think the the rest of the top ten haven't been super consistent. Like we've we've had stronger top tens, absolutely. Yeah. Um, like there are there are some players who have had some losses that I think don't represent the quality of player they are. Um, like I think some of them probably think they could do better. Um, but like, do I think that warrants saying like Ega is only winning because yeah. some people no. think the top ten are weak? No. Um, like she's Absolutely she's not. incredible. You could. You could drop her in any era, and she would be wildly successful playing at this level. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a bit of both, but I would say it has more to do with Shriantek. Yeah, I would say you answered your own question like just a little bit before Bansh, because you said mm-hmm. um, that um, Shriantek got tested before, but she just kind of came up with the goods like after after like a top first set or two, um, yeah. or first set and a half. But like, um, I think it really is a matter of like the fact that she has been able to find the answers and that's totally on her like it's it's not somebody that gives her the answers like there's no coaching and like there's no player just kind of like dropping their level like at the right key moment that she takes a set but like uh 
it's it's just really just Iga just being able to push through and win those like even when it's tight because she has been um challenged even if those those players were not top tens but they used to be like for example take yeah. Azarenka or Andrescu who mm -hmm. challenged her like so yeah I think it's, I guess what I mean is more yeah. not not in relation to Iga because she's amazing and she's doing all these generational yeah. things but I mean just the rest of the field as a whole yeah. like it doesn't feel to me like the rankings right now if you go from like two through whatever 20 like it's not yeah. really reflective of their current form it's more like reflective of 52 weeks which I get it's supposed to be but it yeah. sort of feels like you know for example like you have Condivate right who's lost who's you know who had really good results at the end of last year she won like 30 of her last 34 matches we were talking about her a lot on this podcast because she was winning almost everything like indoors and even but I mean since like Doha or since February and in the majors she's not really had the best results mm -hmm. and she she lost early in this tournament and now she's suddenly world number two and she's you know lost like six of her last nine matches and then you have just random fluctuations like between two through 15 because they're sort of really close to each other and then you sort of have Shviantik with this like two to three thousand gap yeah. and I think she's pretty much secure for the ranking like the rest and then you have Barty, you know you know retiring so that kind of throws an edge into the yeah. thing yeah. then you have injuries it's just so hard to gauge sort of yeah. where everyone else is at yeah i mean i think that that thing with contivate is not super ideal like it's not yeah. great for your world number two to have be like three for six in the last nine matches but i think injuries are playing a role here like i think uh -huh. osaka in an ideal world, like where injuries are not a thing, Osaka would be up there, Krejikova would be up there, Andrescu would be up there, um, you'd have others. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's not the fault of the tour. Um, I also think in the yeah. majors, playing best of three instead of best of five is a huge part of this. I mean, on I the agree. men's side, we saw Tsitsipas go down two sets in the first round. Um, like we saw Felix go down two sets in the first round. Um, like if that were best of three, he would not have gotten to Rafa. Um, and these players would would have lost in the first round. So Alcaraz in the second round as well. Yeah, exactly. Like he he was down two sets to one. Um, There's no match point like, actually in that match. And Zverev as well in the second round against yeah. Bias. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So like these, um, so when you can only play best of three, it really reduces your margin for error. You can be a great player and have one bad day, and it's a black mark on one of the four biggest tournaments of the year. Like that's really harsh. I think judging someone based on that is excessive um like if um like all it takes is a slightly off day or an opponent redlining for an hour um that's not the yeah. case on the men's side and so i think you absolutely have to take that into account yeah. because it's unfair to judge them like based on results that are heavily influenced by the format um i think like you can look at how they're playing and um use the eye test and say like you know i watched this match and I don't know, Sakari was really off. Like she, I haven't seen her play this badly in a while. And like, that's fine. Um, I think going off of that is completely fine because it's stuff that happens. But I think saying like, oh, all these players are losing early is kind of missing the forest for the trees and you need to take everything well, into context. I guess that, that would then big up and beg another question, which is why are some players so good in the Masters 1000s? Like, mm -hmm. for example, why does... You know, why does Svidalina won like four or five Masters? And, you know, you know, I guess other players too, right? Uh, Georgie, she's won a Masters. Or like, you know, other, other players. And then they come in the majors and, you know, maybe it's the day off. Maybe it's the day off in between. 
where they have to think a little mm-hmm. more. Or they have, they have to, their routines have to be a little bit different because the format yeah. is still the same, right? Yeah. And so yeah, but the pressure is higher, and and the and conditions the, are different. Like the it's points at stake, and uh, yeah, and like like no no two tournaments. Are, or, or maybe yeah. you have a tougher draw and you have to play the world number one, uh, whereas you didn't yeah. when you won your masters. Like everything is different. Yeah. Like no a lot of factors. Yeah. Yeah. No two yeah. sets of conditions are the same. I mean, um, trying to think of a good example. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the time on the men's side as well, we've seen someone had really good success in the masters and then lose. I mean, Fokina, for example, right. he um, he made the final in Monte Carlo. He I think he was seated for Roland Garros. He was having a good clay season. He was improving, and then he goes out in the first round. Like that's that sucks, right? Like it's he he did the opposite of peaking at the most important tournament. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like it happens, you know. Like conditions are different. Um, for the men, format is different. Um, but like, yeah, different pressure, um, different routine, different city. Um, there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I would say and, as well, like if if you're yeah. talking ranking, then performance at majors, like. And getting back to Iga, it's just the the fact that I would say that what you point out, I think it, it's more of a reflection of rankings for themselves rather than um, actual like form. Like you'd rather maybe look at the race or anything like that. But um, it's just I think I the rankings yeah. right now are more skewed towards one or two really big results. Yeah, but it, it's yeah, I, to... it, it just helps though. Like this, you can't you can help but like have a have a like of a dosa that wins like an Indian Wells and automatically has a thousand points. That is that is <laughs> yeah. a lot. Like it's just like Radukano, for example. She hasn't really been doing like that great. I don't, I don't think she won like three matches in a row this year yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but but she but has those two thousand points because that US Open was amazing. And like, she she keeps going up in the rankings every week. She just jumps like one more. She's like on the verge of being a top ten almost because of that. But like uh um in yeah. in a sense it's like it's and nothing wrong with Radukano obviously we've already talked about her and that a dream run doesn't automatically make you um, a player to beat at every tournament that you enter. Like it's, it's not like yeah. that, that it works. Like she, she will learn. She's just started like completely weird, but like um, she's still a pretty good player. Uh, but I guess it's just the way that the rankings are. And I think it's just, yeah. I don't know it, until we have better that it is what it is. And yeah. it's not taking away as well from the, the entire top 20 and top 30 who has. No, of course not unbelievable like players like they're kind of yeah. coming and you know and they have bad days as well probably they have more bad days in the top 10 that that's probably one of the reasons why they're not um closer into the top 10 than some of the other girls are they're women yeah i yeah i mean i think like to, i guess to answer your earlier question like does it maybe speak to like a not super strong top 10 that Contivate is number two, despite losing six of nine matches. Like, yeah, like yeah. it probably does. But does that mean that the top 10 is weak? Like, no, like, I think there will be stronger top tens. There'll be weaker top tens as well. Um, and I think there are factors that go into why things are the way they are right now that are not in the player's control. And I think you have to consider those. So like, could, could the top of the game be stronger right now? Yeah. Um, is that entirely the fault of the players or does that mean that, you know, Iga is benefiting from a weak era or that players need to be doing better? Like, no, it's, it's not as big a deal as some people are making it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, I think, I think that's good. I think we covered, yeah, yeah, we kind of covered all the factors. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. On the men's side though, uh, yeah. the other quarterfinal in the top half is Alcaraz against uh, Zverev. We match up the Madrid final where, um, yeah. Alcaraz won really easily. Do we see that being competitive, or do we think uh, 
Alcaraz is just much a better player and he's fresher and too good and he has the drop shot and he does he's you know just a better player right now than, than Zverev. So. Yeah. So, yeah, not only is he a better player, but with the exception of that second round, he's been in way better form. I mean, he uh-huh. he demolished Korda and Hachinov, and he only dropped his serve once across both of those matches. Um, whereas Zverev got pushed into like a an hour plus long mega tie break against Bernabe Zapata Marais, who, you know, yeah. very nice player, but that should not be happening. Um, so yeah, I I see Alcaraz winning that easily. Yeah. I, I think uh, I struggle to even see Zverev. Maybe he gets a set. Maybe. Yeah, but, but I think I don't. Not more than that, though. Yeah, I'd be surprised if it's yeah not straights or four. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know who I want to talk about is um the god of tennis, uh, Marin Cilic. Marin Cilic. Yes. Let's. You may talk about him. <laughs> yeah. So Marin Cilic so is was... not nineteen years old. <laughs> right. Um. So I was at this match against Medvedev. Um. And it was the night session, and I was expecting it to be several hours long i was expecting to probably still be there now um and it was over in basically an hour and a half because chillich summoned up the spirit of the 2014 us open um barely missed a ball won 90 percent of the points on his first serve um he took medvedev apart this you know major champion quarter finalist at the french open last year world number two he had nothing um he didn't tank he was reacting and fighting basically the entire time um and he had nothing it was insane i don't i didn't see it coming um did you guys see it coming not at all i, I did think that chillich would trouble him for one or two sets and we could get a five setter or a four setter like what happened at wimbledon but i didn't think he'd sustain it from start to finish the way he did and not have a single dip and not feel the nerves especially given how his last three or four years have gone you know yeah. since getting to the final against federer at the Australian yeah. Open, or since he lost a match to Guido Pea, I think you can track it all the way back to right. that match at Wimbledon where he blew a two sets and a break lead. And, you know, he's just, he's always, he still had some good results here and there in majors. Last uh, major, he beat Rublev in the third round, played amazing tennis, um, and was a setup on Felix as well. So he's, and he's now back in the top 20. So he's been a little more consistent as of late, but I did not see this coming at all to answer your question to win. What is it like? Thirty-three winners and twenty-two unforced, and ninety percent of his first two points. I mean, just ridiculous. I feel like Medvedev was so flummoxed at the end. I mean, he just for better or worse. I mean, his game normally he's usually a wall from the back of the court. I mean, today he was not even able to put many balls in the court and extend rallies because the show just serve and the serve was one. And his, I thought his defense was impressive as well. You know, here's a guy who I thought you know was past his physical prime. Definitely, I think. Uh, sometimes I, I kind of thought he'd need a quicker court or he'd need a, he'd, he'd need to do, he needed to be a Wimbledon or a grass event and, you know, maybe he could win cheap points that way. But I think the clay is actually really helping him. It's, it's giving him some extra time to set up for that first step, which he really needs because he's not the same explosive defender that he was, let's say, you know, 2014 U S open. Yeah. So for him to get this on clay at Roland Garros, where he's made two quarterfinals before, but this is the only major where he's not made the final. He's made the yeah. final at Wimbledon, final at the U.S. Open, uh, won the U.S. Open, and finals in Australia. So yeah. this was really a throwback. I think this was his like a top three, top five performance in his career, easily. Yeah, I mean, I would even say top two with that semi against Federer from the 2014 U.S. Open. I mean, oh yeah, if we're only insane. counting majors, then I guess yeah. We're, yeah, we're I mean, yeah. Medvedev did not have a single break point. This was the only time in Medvedev's career I read on Twitter that he didn't have a break point in a best of five match. 
and this wow. was on clay um yeah. i think he only even got past 30 in a return game one time i think he got to deuce at like one four in the third set after being down 40 love like it was this was as lopsided as it gets um yeah it was it was incredible so yeah can Chilich make the final absolutely yeah. <laughs> um i think i think anyone who watched this match is gonna be scared yeah i think it's uh i'll be honest i didn't i didn't watch this match in particular but um i also had i also think that i tweet i tweeted out earlier that Medvedev had already exceeded my expectations for this tournament. I thought he was going to lose to Kachmanovich, who was actually playing really well up until this I, point. I thought that too. Yeah. But he kind of crushed him. Too. And then it surprised me that he would lose that badly to Chilich. I won't say like that I would imagine that match to go for like five sets. I think Medvedev's fighting spirit and the fact that he's been playing so well um, kind of means that for me, like he would have gone at least like four if he were to lose this match. But I don't think anybody could have predicted that. I'm at this match could have been this terrible for him because the, yeah. his serve right. is, is good enough that he should work on any surface. Like it's yeah. a, a good serve doesn't depend on like whether it's clay on, on grass. It, a good serve is a good serve. Um, but I think Chilich just kind of got a read on him, on him. Like he just kind of like downloaded his avatar spirit, like from, <laughs> yeah, and that, that was it. Like it's it just could dominate all of the elements and that he just could see the future and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, this he was, was like a on his record. Like there was nothing Medvedev could do, as from like what people are, are saying. And as I said, like n- nothing really justifies that um, that scoreline, unless he was either that or Medvedev was injured. And it, for the for the likes of it, it doesn't look like Medvedev was injured. No, at all. I, he was fine. He was actually like he played a few of those bendy man octopus points at the end of the match like he was running for everything but it didn't win him any points because chillich wouldn't miss yeah. um yeah i mean i i was disappointed as well that he couldn't like produce some form of resistance but at the same time like against that version of chillich i yeah. don't think there's a whole lot you can do um so yeah i mean it's probably going to be a hit to his confidence just because like i don't know that he thought he could lose that badly to anyone on any surface at this point in his career, uh, major champion, he's been world number one. Um, but that's how good Peak Chilich is. Uh, according to our friend uh, Sidhan, um, Peak Chilich is the greatest tennis player uh, in history, um, well, which I don't agree with. But you watch matches like today's, and it's easy to see how someone could think that. Yeah, yeah and it's like, uh, I, I think I learned something about Medvedev and potential matchups as well, because against, uh, against Kachimanovic, you know, he's more of a rhythm baseliner. Like he's had a really good year. He's, you know, he's, he did amazing in Miami. He did amazing, you know, like winning so many matches and he has Nell Bandian as his coach and he has great timing and he's, he's more of a baseline hugger. And mm-hmm. in that match, Medvedev, you know, could use his skill sets a lot better because, you know, Med, you know, he, as good as Kachmanovic is, he doesn't have raw, like finishing power like Chilich does. And so he could get into those long skirmishes and he could, he could uh, outlast uh, Kachmanovic. He could rely on his defense. He could, he could use his depth while trading. He could use his depth uh, like on the return, and then he could he could go on offense himself. But against Chilich, he just looks so. It was almost like man versus boy out there, which is crazy because they're both six foot six. But it did it did kind of feel like there was nothing Medvedev could do. Like I, I was looking at the stats as well because I only caught like the last half of this match. But um, even in the rallies that were nine plus shots, Chilich edged it out eleven to six. Like that is a joke to me. You know, how is, yeah. how is Medvedev 
not winning at least half of those points like that you know for, for me that was like the big surprise because I, I i thought okay you know in the zero to four shots tillage would have probably dominated but i didn't expect it to be that lopsided like in all the other rally analysis lengths as well so yeah. That is scary okay. for the rest of the field, for yeah. sure, on the bottom half. Especially yeah. Rublev, who I yeah. think, uh, you know, I think you watched his match today against Sinner. Yeah. yeah I, that's a match I, that I, really favors Sinner in, because of backhand to backhand. I, I was there. Rublev was very fortunate. I mean, Sinner had this physical issue going into the match, and he still won the first at 6-1. Um, uh-huh. I, it would not have been good for Rublev if Sinner had been mobile the entire time. It was it was a sad way to see it end, but like, yeah, Rublev was definitely lucky to get through that. And like, can he beat Chilich? Sure. But if Chilich plays like that, no way. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And obviously they have their Australian open match, which they last played in. Rublev's second serve was absolutely massacred in that match. Oh yeah. And that's, that's not going to be fun. For <laughs> He's Chilich is going to be standing practically on the service line to return those. Yeah. Yeah. Although it being on the, clay, the do you think do you think that will help Rublev a little bit that it's on clay and he'll at least get, you know, the second serve ineffectiveness might get mitigated a little bit, or do we just uh, not know because Chilich? I, I would say probably gets worse honestly because Chilich has even more time to set up. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. True. Um, what do you say, Andre? Who do we think is going to make the final? Yeah. Do we still have like Rude and Rune in the other side of the draw? Right. At, at this point, I'll I'll go full recency bias and say Chilich. He was too good today. Yeah. So if Chilich plays like he did today, then I don't see even Casper Rude as good as he's uh, on, as good as he's become, and uh, as good as he's worked himself into this tournament with the match against Sonego, and then obviously the four sets today against Herkoch, which his forehand was so good. I think. Uh, Chilich, if he's at his best, is definitely going to get there. So, yeah, I would say so too. And honestly, um, ah, but yeah. I don't know. It just feels so. I just can't trust it, though. Like it's only one match. Yeah. I just don't know. I, I mean, I know in every tournament he's beaten Jill Simone so far. He's gone on and won, but that's only twenty fourteen U.S. <laughs> Open. So it's a sign. Um, uh, I, I I do have to head out. Um, okay, but I'll I'll talk to you guys again soon. Hold on, sure. before you leave. Uh, before you leave, what your, are your picks? Yeah, picks for, for the, the final, like for the winner, actually. Final and winner. You don't have to say scores. Uh, Alcaraz, Chilich, uh, Alcaraz wins. Okay. Do you and think it's going to be women? three sets? For Alcaraz? Uh, four sets. Um, four sets. For the woman, um, I know this draw last well. Um, Sviantek. And who's on the other side of the draw? Um Pigula. Uh, Pigula. No, Pigula's on, uh, it's oh, yeah, half, on, so yeah. on the other half. It's, uh, Kaza- no, no, Kazaki knows also on this half. So the other half is Sloan Stephens and Coco Golf. Oh, and okay. I'll, and Trevis I'll, on, yeah. I'll say Stevens. Um, Stevens, okay. Stevens was really good. Um, and she's made the final before. She was setting a breakup on Halep even. Yeah, so I'll say Shviontek Stevens and Shviontek wins. Yeah. Okay. Um right. catch you guys later. Right. Say out, goodbye uh, to Owen, but the uh, chat continues for a little bit. <laughs> yes. Cool. And uh, all right. So yeah, where so were it's just we me and Bunch right now, and uh we're still on the topic of men's draw. Who do you who do you think is gonna win based on current results? Yes, and then so who else is in the other half? There's Casper Rude. Casper Rude, uh Rune, Tillich, and Rublev are on the other half. Right. So um, I'm going to say Casper oh, Rude yeah. beats Rune. Yeah. And we get a Chilich versus Rude. 
semifinal. And so he's either gonna, yeah, it's either gonna be Djokovic against Chilich or Djokovic against Rude. Hmm. I'm gonna say, I'm just gonna go with Reese Bias as well. I'm just gonna go with Chilich too. Like, yeah. Same. I yeah. will say I will say Chilich and and Djokovic as well. And the one thing I will say like before we end is that as good as Rude is, I think that would be probably one of the most disappointing finals if we get it. Like I, I don't yes. I don't see Rude being a champion this week. He might surprise me, and I will be happy if he if he does. But I don't think that Rude has a game to trouble. Um, Nadal Akras or yeah. Djokovic. Well, to be honest with you, I think no matter who we get in the bottom half, as harsh as it may sound, they're all yeah. great players in their own right. I yeah. think we could get a situation like in 2013 with uh, where Ferrer and Songa was the other mm. semi and Djokovic and Nadal was the other one. Yeah. Because I just think there's a big gap in um, like in level and experience. Yeah. Uh, and the matchup is just a bad one. I mean, Chilich and Djokovic is 18-2 and two for Djokovic. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's just hasn't been close. Like they've had a f- two or three really good matches, but uh, Djokovic has a big edge. Yeah. So I just I just don't see that final being that competitive either. Even if Chilich is really really hot, uh, he's not going to be able to sustain that against Novak. I don't think. Yeah, I would, hope at, yeah. I would hope at least if Djokovic goes through, um, that the final could be competitive if Djokovic has to play really, really grueling matches and gets in like really like mm-hmm. not fresh at all into the final. Yeah. So that could be a reason. But then again, like last year he came back from just I still love. So it could yeah. be could still sure. be Djokovic's year again. I guess the other thing is to consider is I mean the bottom half originally when I had done this is, you know, obviously CT Pass has been a really good clay court player the last couple of years and he's Having these great results, I mean, he made he won Monte Carlo. He got to the quarters of Barcelona, semis of Madrid, final in Rome. But I think as we learned today, and as we've seen throughout this whole uh, season in general, like he's been struggling. Like he's won a lot of matches because his base level is incredibly high, and he can beat most of the players with his B or C game. But at the moment, he just doesn't quite have the confidence. You know, he's especially on the backhand. I thought he had didn't have a great backhand day at all against Rune. He was averaging 65 miles per hour on that shot, and it's just not going to get it done. He's still having uh, technical issues on the return of serve, as well as the you know the backhand return. The, the serve is not working great either. He's missing a lot of first serves, and he was giving Rune a lot of chances to attack. Um, and just you know, and he had a lead in the first set. He let that slip, and he, uh, you know, the match just it, it was Rune was just a much better player all throughout. And you know, I kind of thought, okay, you know, he'd gotten through Emer in straights in the third round, and he'd had those two really tough first rounds, which again, he didn't really play his best, but he came through. And I, and I thought this is not a great sign because on the one hand, he's getting through these matches, but he's not playing his best. So I think uh, he'll definitely have to go back reassess. Uh, uh, it's going to take, uh, this is going to be a tough loss for him. I think he was in the final last year. He was one set away from winning the title. Yeah, I had him, you know, getting to the final and winning just potentially because of his draw and all of that. And I was wrong. So yeah. I think, uh, I think uh, in, a, could, in a way it could be a blessing for him because um means that uh, potentially he doesn't have to suffer another really tough defeat late in the tournament. And now he has more time for the grass season, which he's not had time for before. And he can properly train and, you know, maybe give himself a little bit of a break because he's played a lot of tennis and, you know, maybe he'll have another. He'll have a better second half to the season than he had last year. 
where he was also struggling with some elbow issues. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that just opened up a lot of the the bottom half, and now uh, we're left with these players. But I thought Rune, nothing to take credit from him because he played really, really well, and yeah. he was yeah. super composed. And in the end, I thought he was going to cramp because yeah. he was, you know, really, really tight and nervous, and he came up with an ace and two clutch forehands, and yeah. he completely deserved the match. So yeah. well done to him. Yeah, and uh, same question to uh, we asked from to Owen just before we we go. Yeah, who wins and uh, what's the uh, what do you think is it going to be a straight set, a four set, a five setter? And um, you said I think Chilic, right? Yeah, I think Djokovic Chilic. I think we get three sets. I think one of them is a tight one. Yeah, um, but I think Djokovic wins that um, yeah. fairly fairly comfortably. Even though he might, you know, he might be potentially tired from. Four plus hours against Nadal, and then Alcaraz is there, so yeah, which I think it should be. So, so yeah, I, I, but I still think he has such a such a good grasp on how to play Chilich. He's played him twenty times, and he knows that game better than anyone really. So I, I don't really see him see that troubling him. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I would that's say like, just probably by just to be different, as I said, and like we're not boring. I would say probably Djokovic in four. Okay. Yeah, it, they split the first two, and Djokovic just go goes on it's three and two probably in the fourth and um, third and fourth sets, and yeah. that concludes it. And um, and uh, for the women, oh yeah, it was Jontek against. I'll say Jontek against Fernandez, and okay. I would say probably Jontek in two, um, and um, really badly, but like I would say like probably three and four, like last year's US Open. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I am going to be different just because that's what we do on here, <laughs> and also because I went on the Murray Mason's podcast and I said Kokovov will get to the okay. final, so I think I'm just going to stick with that because I don't want to hedge it. And also, yeah. um, I feel like that match with Stone Stephens is kind of fifty-fifty. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, Fernandez. I do think she'll get to the semis. Um, so I have Kokovov in the final, and I have uh, Shantek winning that in straights. Mm-hmm. all right and that concludes it um yeah. hopefully your listeners are are having a crack at this episode um before the nadal Djokovic match but if you're not i'm sorry uh <laughs> and uh that'll be it um thanks for listening and hope you enjoy nadal Djokovic. and if it's after hopefully there was a really good match and we all got to enjoy this together See you guys later um, and follow us on Twitter at Tennis and Bagels, Marsh is at Fun Um Owen's at Tennis Nation. I'm at Rolandberg Andre. And see you next time. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm-hmm. 